Hello, and welcome to the Literati Cast. I'm Jennifer Loughran, and I'm a senior agent at the Andrea Brown Literary Agency, where I rep kids' books from picture books through YA. My guest today is Martha Brockenbrough. Last time she visited, we talked about historical nonfiction, among other things. But today, she will be discussing her latest book, which is more like documentary nonfiction for young adults. I'll let her tell you all about it. Let me see if I can get Martha on the line. Hi, Martha. Hello, Jennifer. How are you? I'm uh, fantastic. (laughs) Excellent. I'm so glad to have you back. You're my first repeat guest. I'm so glad to be back. It's a huge honor. Well, you're very beloved. So first of all, you have a new book out. This is the elephant in the room, shall we say. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting it out of the way immediately. Unprecedented is a YA book about the life and times of a certain, I don't know, president? (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) Can you give me the nutshell version of what is this book? And maybe more importantly, why is this book? Yes. Okay. So it's a biography of Donald Trump there. We said it. We said the name. (laughs) And it's um, in a nutshell, it is not only his life, but it's the history of his family, because I thought it was important to show a whole bunch of patterns. His grandfather was an immigrant. His father was a businessman who did some questionable things and profited handsomely from the federal government. Uh, I covered Donald Trump's business career in part because I wanted readers to know, well, how good of a businessman is he? I know that was part of the impetus of electing him. And then finally, I cover his long-term political aspirations. They go all the way back to 1980. It's a lot longer than he will admit. Um, Mm. And then his campaign and the first 540-some days of his presidency. So this is arriving in stores December 4th. I understand it was delayed because of a printing issue or? It did. There was a small production error and uh, my publisher, Gene Fywell, wanted this book to be 100% accurate and useful. And what happened was um, an older copy of the manuscript was used for indexing. So it was not a problem with the book itself, but let's say someone wanted to look up something um, using the index. It wouldn't have been so awesome if the things, the page numbers were wrong. So, right. Yep. Fair enough. So your last book, which you talked about last time you were here was historical nonfiction about Alexander Hamilton. Obviously a great deal of research went into that, but for this project, I guess my big question is, How do you write a nonfiction book in which many of the events you're chronicling are literally unfolding in real time? It was really difficult. Um, There are two different books, although fundamentally it's the same form. Both of them were biographies. Um, You know, obviously a biography of Alexander Hamilton is his life story. There's not a lot of his life story that's continuing to be written. Um, Trump was totally different. Um, It makes a logical follow-up, though, for the following reason. Hamilton was really worried about a demagogue becoming president of the United States. In his view, Aaron Burr was a demagogue. He was someone who didn't have fixed political positions. He um, would play to the passions of people um, and not necessarily using facts. He was not trustworthy. What's more, Aaron Burr's finances were in lousy shape. And Hamilton wrote 
letters to people. And this is what led to their deadly duel. He wrote letters saying, hey, this guy's finances are so murky, he could not possibly afford to be president. And it puts him at the risk of being corrupted by foreign influence. And Mm. so as that book, as I was finishing that book, the election was happening. And I was astonished at how many similarities there were between Donald Trump and Aaron Burr. Um, And because I was so steeped in the nation's history, in the Constitution, and what it meant, um, and also because of the concern that Donald Trump is the demagogue who Alexander Hamilton anticipated, I thought, wow, this is a book I would be interested in writing. There are a lot of parallels. I mean, Aaron Burr was a notorious womanizer. Uh, and <laughs> True story. And, and he even wrote letters. He had his daughter hang on to um, letters that he had written to his paramour. So there was some boundary issues, perhaps, with, <laughs> with Aaron Burr that maybe we're also seeing today. I wonder if we have an Alexander Hamilton somewhere in the wings. <laughs> Um, You know, Alexander Hamilton was a really super rare creature. He was a war hero. He was also um, an incredible writer and scholar. And he understood complex financial markets. Um, These days, people tend to be more specialized than Alexander Hamilton. But one thing that was true about Hamilton is he was deeply principled. And I think that we do have a lot of deeply principled people in government. Um, the problem is that sometimes um, the act of being principled is now cast as, oh, that's just a partisan thing. Um, and I think that that is something that I would love for us all to be wary of. You can be principled without being partisan. And of course, sometimes really principled people get killed in duels. <laughs> so- <laughs> Sometimes, but you know, people get killed hanging up Christmas lights, Jennifer. What can I say? That's true. So I think it's safe to say that the past couple of years have brought us no shortage of surprises. Was there anything in the writing of this that caused you to do a 180? Well, so uh, uh, this book in itself was a 180. I was wanting to finish um, another novel. I started out writing novels as, you know, my, my first children's book that came out is a young adult novel and I miss getting to do that. Um, but sometimes things that happen in the world change your point of view as an artist. And so absolutely doing this book and doing it on a really, really tight timeline and not knowing how it was going to end, um, was challenging, but more I've started to ask the question, why me? Why should I write this book? What should my next book be? And how can it best contribute to the conversation that children's literature is? Right. So a lot of times, that's a good point. And a lot of times something dramatic will happen in the news. Like say the Thai cave rescue or an earthquake or natural disaster somewhere in the world, or even like a possum climbing a skyscraper or something like that. (laughs) And immediately a bunch of writers... Yeah, a bunch of writers will come to me with fever in their eyes and they'll say, I've decided this is a story that needs to be told. And most of the time, actually, it isn't. Or it's either maybe it's a setting or it's an event, but it isn't really a whole story. Or maybe it is a story, but not one that needs to be told by them. So how do you decide what is and isn't a story and what isn't isn't a story for you to tell? That's a great question. You know, what's a story and when does it need to be told? So 
I felt like the Trump book really needed to be told and I wanted it to be put out there quickly. Um, for me, you know, I had done all of this Hamilton research. I was already something of an expert in the subject matter. I woke up the day after election day and thought with kind of a, a shudder that, oh my gosh, there's a really good chance that traditional children's books are going to be written about this very not traditional president. And by that, I mean something that's that's flattering and that kind of rubs away all of the controversial aspects to him. And so I didn't want that to happen. And I considered myself on that score a really good person to write it. What's more, um, I'm one of very few women to have written about Donald Trump. Gwenda Blair has done it, but most of the bi biographies, the vast majority, are written by men. So that mm -hmm. perspective is already out there. Now, um, I did have another story idea that I had been working on that relates to um, the political era that we're in. The central character of that story is um, an American-born man of Chinese heritage. And this was one of the, the 180s that I've had as a writer, um, is thinking that is not my story to write exclusively. Yes, I researched it. Yes, I was aware of it. Yes, I feel passion for the subject area. But if I write that story, that means that someone who shares his Chinese heritage is going to be squeezed off of the shelves. And I think that's a question that we really need to ask ourselves. You know, we the, the reason that this political era is so um, alarming, so potent, so engrossing for all of us is that we're really seeing... Um, inequities in how power is distributed in our society. Um, you know, white men still hold a lion's share of power. And we see this in so many different stories as they unfold. You know, the hate you give, um, you know, is a really great example of someone reclaiming that narrative. And I think as, you know, I'm, I am a white person. And of course, I want the world to be a better and more just place. The answer to that question is not to have me write stories that supplant the voices of marginalized writers. It's for me to amplify their voices. And then when there is a, a, a white narrative that I can go to town on, like the biography of Donald Trump, that is <laughs> that's where I bring every ounce of energy and passion and diligence um, to the mm -hmm. fore. So obviously a lot of teenagers are very politically aware and interested, but also, you know, a lot of teens and adults tune out of things like the news. Um, so how do you approach making sometimes complicated or unsavory topics like grapplable for teenagers? It's funny because I think a lot of people underestimate teenagers. Um, we do this all the time. And, you know, there's, there's adults who routinely will mock young people for their interests. And I have no part of that. I have the utmost respect for young people. When you look at the Parkland High School survivors um, to whom this book is dedicated, mm. those kids organized a cross-country bus trip. Those kids have risen up to become powerful spokespeople. They are rocking the foundation of the NRA. They are getting advertisers to stop supporting um, bigoted TV commentators. 
um, kids can absolutely change the world. And so I don't write down to kids. What I do is put things in context that maybe a book that is written for adults isn't going to do. So, you know, you've got Bob Woodward's fear. So he's trying to sum up the narrative of Trump inside the White House. My job is to show, you know, what's this guy's whole life? And then when there's things like the Vietnam War that feel distant um, to one of today's young readers, I, I give a little extra context to that so that they can say, oh, okay, that's what that war is. That's why it was fought. Get it. Now I understand why these things are significant. So it's it's um, a broader perspective and it's also additional context. But I think that young readers can absolutely process great amounts of complexity. Um, and you know, I don't know why we would suggest they need anything to be dumbed down for them. Oh, no. I mean, I hope that that didn't. Oh, that's not what I know. I'm actually thinking of, you know, a couple of of critics of my work have pointed out, oh, there's so much, you know, kids are going to be overwhelmed. Um, I think people who say that have very little understanding of how absorbed young people can be in the things that they're passionate about. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say also that teenagers tend to be much better readers than most adults. Um, I mean, the, most adults I know read if they read, which most don't actually. But if they do, they read to fall asleep or something like that. <laughs> um, whereas kids will get obsessed with things and into them and read very deeply and read again and again. And, you know, I watch it happen all the time. Yeah. I'm the mother of two teens. I have kids over in my house and I, you know, I, I watch them deeply engaged in books and not just books that are being assigned to them. They're also listening to podcasts. They're doing all sorts of things. And, and we have this assumption, oh, they're just listening to their pop songs and they got their headphones <laughs> on. Not so. Um, a lot of them are listening to a great variety of things. And, uh, you know, I couldn't be more hopeful about the intellectual future of this nation based on the readers I know. By the way, I appreciate extra context because I have to tell you, I'm 40 and I didn't know about the Vietnam War. Like we didn't learn about it in school. So um, I didn't learn uh, about what exactly Watergate really was and all of the stuff leading up to Vietnam until I read it in a children's book. It's so true. We kind of, <laughs> Americans love to stop history after World War II. It's like, oh, yeah. doo, 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 we beat Hitler. We <laughs> are the best. Woo. You know, and we sweep things under the rug, like the Japanese internment, um, like the Chinese Exclusion Act. We do a really crummy job of bringing the narrative of history. Like, the reason that we write history, the reason that we create these memories of it is for the future. Um, it's so we can say, this is what happened and this is what we've learned. And we just simply don't do enough of this in meaningful ways. Agreed. So a certain newspaper, I won't deign to give their name, <laughs> um, they had a very annoying review of this book in which basically they saw bias in your reportage of facts. So what do you say to that? Well, the newspaper was the Daily Prophet. Oh, but I did. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's interesting. We are living in an era where people have started labeling facts as being partisan. They're not. They're facts. 
Um, my book is based on a massive timeline that I made in Excel of things that happened on a day-by-day -day basis during the campaign and the first part of his presidency. And then, you know, for earlier parts of the book, it was on a year-by-year -year basis. I simply reported the facts. And um, for people to label that partisan ignores the principled approach that I take to this book. Uh, for, for this book is I want to show who Trump is, what the significant patterns of his behavior are, so that at the end, a reader has a real sense of who the president is and what it means for the nation. That's not partisan, not, you know, whatsoever. Now, when we do start to treat political parties as being more important than human principles, and the core one for me is being, you know, insisting on telling the truth, um, once the truth becomes a partisan tool, we are sunk. And so I wanted to resist that with this book. And, uh, you know, people can read however they want. And that's what readers do. I know the work that I did. There's more than 400 pages of narrative. There's more than 1,400 footnotes. Anybody can check where I got my facts. Um, and anybody is free to come up with a different interpretation of them. But you know, this, this book is entirely factual. It's been fact-checked. It's been reviewed by a lawyer. So I'm totally comfortable that it performs the service that I intended to perform when I set out to write it. I know that the advice is always that authors should mind their own business and never respond to reviewers. But sometimes, you know, when I'm reading reviews, I just want to yell at them. Like when I read a review that has totally missed the point. What do you do when a reviewer just gets it wrong, perhaps in a small way or in a major? You know, I don't do anything. I can't do anything. There would be no credibility on my part by, you know, like when people object to it, I'll respond to them and I'll, I'll nod and echo it. But otherwise, that's the reviewer's right. And that's their job. Um, now, we would hope that reviewers always review the book that they're given and not the one that they wish they had, <laughs> um, particularly when it's nonfiction. Um, we don't, you know, nonfiction, it is, it is what it is. Um, but otherwise, you know, it's, um, we don't write for critics. We write for readers. And I wrote this book for all the young people of the world, and frankly, all of the all of the grownups who ne didn't necessarily get an awesome history and civics education. Um, I want us to know what's going on in the world so that we can make informed decisions. Fair enough. Uh, similarly, I can barely read a single news article without my head wanting to explode. How do you keep your cool when you're writing about such contentious topics, or do you? Well, it's, it was really hard and it wasn't necessarily the newspaper articles that got me. I think my lowest day doing the research was when I was reading the FBI file that supported the U.S. Department of Justice action against the Trump organization in the early 1970s. This was the Justice Department's lawsuit against the Trumps for discriminating um, against Black and Puerto Rican people who wanted to live in their apartment buildings. These were apartment buildings that, you know, many were constructed with um, federal loans, which all of our taxes went to support, and they were trying to keep people of color out. And when you think about what it means to struggle to find housing and how much harder that makes life, I was sickened by it. My heart broke 
to read it. Um, and I confess that it did make me angry when I read that Trump said the government didn't prove its case. That's a lie. That's false. The Trumps settled. Um, and so, in fact, the government did prove its case. What the Trumps didn't do afterward is meet the terms of the settlement. And again, that becomes part of the pattern of his life. And, you know, you, you can read the book for more information <laughs> on that. But it was, um, you know, I, I guess I'll confess I am outraged by racism and outraged by injustice. But um, I just kept adding facts, adding lines to the spreadsheet and looking at the patterns and, you know, how do I know this information? And so, you know, in terms of source material, a, an old FBI file that's made of photocopied notes and stats and everything, that's, that's good information that would be hard for most people to come by. And so I was pleased to distill that even if it was a painful process. It's so weird that he would lie about things. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Let me just give you one of my favorite stats from the book, because this is one of the areas where people create a false equivalency. They'll say, well, Trump lies. All politicians lie. Obama lied. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, all right. There are people who keep track of lies. Over eight years, Obama was caught saying um, 18 things that were not true for a variety of reasons that you can keep your doctor saying um, certainly he intended that to be true, but then it turned out not to be true in the legislation that resulted. However, Donald Trump, over the course of his not quite three years in office, for every single lie Obama told, Trump has told 1,230. So to say that everybody does it is simply not true. Trump lies a great deal. Um, and it's indefensible. It's just simply indefensible. And I will, um, I will engage in a deadly duel in New Jersey with anyone <laughs> who tells me that the frequency of Donald Trump's lies is in any way acceptable or good for this nation. Well, if you do that, please do not throw away your shot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I need to change the subject before yeah. my brain explodes. So, um, Will you help me answer some reader questions? Oh, I would love to. Great. So this is a craft one, I guess, from the Tumblr. I just kind of have no real opinion about this, and maybe you do as a writer. It is about speech tags. Ah. The author writes, I recently learned that for speech tags, the words said and asked should be used the most. Are there times other words can be used as well? What if you want to bring attention to the character's voice? Is it okay to have she screamed or she snapped or she cried or she said in a raised voice or she muttered? <laughs> okay. So remember in third grade when you are taking creative writing and your teacher tells you to vary your vocabulary and use different words. And, and this is why um, I swear in old Nancy Drew's, the speech tag is Nancy ejaculated. <laughs> um, <laughs> and here's the thing. Said is one of those words, you, it's, it's invisible and that's why it works. And in fact, a lot of times you can snip it all together and replace it with stage direction. Um, holy cow, look at that dinosaur. Barbara picked up the binoculars. You know, so you don't even need the said. So that's one thing. Eliminate it all together. Um, the second thing, you know, that piece of advice, show, don't tell. Well, mm. A fancy dialogue tag like that is very often going to be telling. 
sometimes you've already shown it. Like, let's say the dialogue is, you're the biggest idiot I've ever met. Um, You don't need the shouted. Those are some pretty shouty words. (laughs) And so the more you can convey um, without having to tell the reader, I think the more powerful it's going to be. Um, Again, though, there are no rules. And sometimes I'll put, you know, somebody whispered because I do want to um, get a sense of the volume. Um, But, you know, mostly I stick with said or nothing at all. Fair. So here's one about revision. Yes. How should I approach an R&R, that is a revise and resubmit, if or any revision, I would say, <laughs> I'm interjecting. Um, how should I rep- approach a revision if the main issue is a lack of narrative drive and unclear stakes? Well, um, so what gives us narrative drives and what gives us stakes? These two things are related to each other. Um, having the character want something. It doesn't have to be they want to save the world. They could just want a BB gun. Um, So having the desire really, really clear. um, And then having obstacles preventing them from achieving that desire. And then the narrative stakes. What happens if they don't get it? How will they suffer? And I think that's one of the things with revision is that you can go through and you can say, you know, have I made my character's desire really, really clear? Are there both external obstacles and internal ones that are preventing it? And by internal ones, I mean, what's my character doing to mess up his or her own life? And how do they have to change? You know, it's not just, um, you know, the character against the world. They're also their own enemy. And then, um, you know, very often the stakes will take care of itself, but, but the reader has to empathize deeply and has to care about the character and has to understand that desire and want it as much as um, the main character does in order for that to work. And I think, you know, you can look at books where, um, you know, let's say the Hunger Games, where it's all super clear. Katniss wants to stay alive. She wants to win the game. Um, but if she wins the game, that means PETA dies. And mm-hmm. so that's a really good, it's a good dilemma um, to have. And the more we care about her and PETA, um, then the higher the stakes get. Um, and so you can look at mentor texts like that. Um, th- and that'll help. Sometimes when I'm um, like framing how to write a good query letter or something, um, the sort of formula that I use, which I'm sure I got from Query Shark or something like that years <laughs> ago, but it's sound. Um, and you can think about this for your own story is, okay, who is this person? What do they want more than anything else in the world? What's stopping them from getting it? What problem do they face or what choice do they have to make? And then how does their problem get worse? Yes. Um, okay, here's a new question. This one is about social media. Uh, the author writes, it seems to me that some writers are very good making connections on social media or making friends at writing retreats, but I prefer to stay in and write by my lonesome. Can an author succeed without going all out in social media or making friends with everyone in the kid lit world? 
I'm friendly with everyone. I'm just not friends with everyone. Of course. I mean, uh, you know, authors can succeed by being authentically themselves. For I, I am a big user of social media because I like it. Um, <laughs> and it helps me stay connected with people. And it helps me also stay abreast in, hey, what books are coming out? And why might I want to read those and champion them? Um, but I think, you know, you do you. The most important thing is writing really, really excellent books. Um, and, you know, when you write an excellent book um, and it says something new, it adds something to the long conversation that we have in literature, then it doesn't matter if you have a social media presence or not. I agree. Although I will say that community can be really helpful when you are writing all by your lonesome in your house. I mean, I find that social media is like my water cooler because I work at home alone a lot of the time. So sometimes I can spend many hours not speaking to anyone, not thinking about anything else but what I'm doing. And it's nice to be able to for me to be able to hop on Twitter and join a conversation for a few minutes or whatever. Um, so, I mean, I think that there are benefits to having community too. So maybe if you can try and dip your toe in, it might not hurt you, but if you really hate it, you don't have to do it. I think this is true. And I do think community and some people prefer to have it offline on Thursdays. I get together with a group of writers and, and we have actual real world conversations. Um, what you want to avoid is the conceit of the lonely, misunderstood genius. Um, and so, you know, if, if, if your reluctance um, to participate is because, oh, no one will understand my work, maybe that's a clue that you actually <laughs> need eyes on the work um, mm. and need to make sure that your intentions are um, coming across as effectively as possible. Well, I'm certain none of our listeners would think that. Never. Okay. So here's something I would have never asked a guest. Ooh. I'm going to do a little switcheroo. <gasps> do you have any questions for me? I do. I do. And it's, it's that time of year. The holidays are coming up. And I wonder, you know, from your perspective, what are challenges to selling holiday-related books? And how can writers who love them best thread that needle? Okay, so I'm going to sound like Scrooge here. <laughs> I do not want to be negative, but I always caution authors actually not to write holiday books right off the bat. Here's why. So most children's books in general have a longer window to sell than adult books. Unlike adult books, which get, they get returned much more quickly, we let children's books take their time on the shelves in the hope that word of mouth will help them gain popularity that kids librarians and teachers will all have a chance to read and pass it along and so kids books is a very generous sector of the bookstore um in that way we actually let the books take the time they need to become popular hopefully the thing with holidays is from a bookseller's perspective there's a very limited window in which we can sell holiday-related children's books. So for Halloween, that window is like the second week of September through October. For Christmas, it's about mid-November through Christmas. And then all those books get returned. So that time to really luxuriate on the shelves and gain popularity, it simply doesn't exist. So from a publisher's perspective, <laughs> they want to be published books that they are fairly certain will do well right out of the gate. So that means 
they fall into one of a couple of buckets. They're either classics, that is Night Before Christmas, Nutcracker, maybe, uh, you know, re-illustrated with some beautiful glitter or something like that. (laughs) Or next bucket, characters that are already popular. So the Grinch, obviously, but also properties like Peppa Pig or Bad Kitty or Bruce the Bear, um, books um, where the character is immediately recognizable. So the parents go, oh, a Snoopy book. Great. We love Snoopy. And they get that book. Um, Another bucket might be books that have some kind of popular culture hook, like your terrific book, Love Santa, um, which that story had gone viral. So people were kind of aware of it in advance, you know? Yeah. Or the fourth bucket, books by very famous people. So like John Green, the name alone is going to make people buy it. If you're not in one of those four buckets, it's extraordinarily difficult to break into the holiday market with an entirely new holiday concept from an unknown author. So I would say if you are a picture book writer, especially the way to do a holiday book is to have a few books with a character that becomes really popular and then pop them into a holiday setting. Alternatively, have a pop culture hook of some kind, or you have to already be famous, have a following. I don't know. Does that resonate with your observations? I think that's really, really true. And, you know, for me, as, as the author of a holiday book that just, I never even thought that it would be a book until I was chatting about it with my editor. I mean, that's how, that's how kind of, uh, you know, (laughs) resistant I was to the idea that you actually can create new books for the holidays, but I think it's true. And, and maybe that's the subject of um, a someday podcast is how to create a really enduring children's character. Um, because you know, that that's the one bucket that regular people I think can, can probably dive into. <laughs> yeah. I mean, with luck. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, and I do, I mean, I guess I have tips about that in a way, but since I don't really have any of those books on my own list, I, I, maybe I'm not the best person to talk about them. So, uh, we're running out of time, sadly, but I, I always ask all my guests the famous question, what are you obsessed with this week? While you're thinking about yours, I will start with mine. So uh, I'm already feeling the effects of the holidays and they haven't even really started. (laughs) Uh, I should say we're recording this right before Thanksgiving. So I'm not sure when it will air exactly, but like it we're already cooking in this house. So, I'm all in on holiday-themed (laughs) rom-coms. Both Hallmark Channel and Netflix has a bunch of new ones. The sillier, the better. The most recent one I watched was The Princess Switch on Netflix, which is absolutely ridiculous. (laughs) I watched it too. (laughs) Yes. So for those who are not in the know yet, it's about a baker in Chicago who gets invited to a tiny European nation, obviously, um, to participate in a baking contest. She bumps into a princess, of course, who looks exactly like her. Sure. And so they switch places, obviously, and they each fall in love with each other's bow. It's pure silliness. Whoever wrote it obviously knew nothing about baking, first of all, because uh, the climactic scene makes zero sense if you know about baking. But Vanessa Hudgens as the star was a total delight. It required absolutely zero thought to process it. 
it's basically a peppermint mocha for the brain. So I've been watching a lot of these. I anticipate about a month more of them before I'm sick of it. Uh, Martha, what are you obsessed with? I'm so glad that you mentioned that movie because I too watched it and I just love a cheesy movie. But my obsession of late, I feel, I feel strange even confessing this, but it's Huskies, the dog having tantrums. If you search Husky tantrum, they have tantrums like nobody's business. So the Husky tantrum is the primal scream about the year 2018 and how it is felt for most of us. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I will send you out. Oh, that's what it sounds like. And uh, it's, it's really the cutest and most endearing thing ever. And uh, I, I hope that you like it as much as I do. Oh, also I watched a video of a rat in Paris chasing a cat. Oh, I that- saw that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. Why not? Let's stop talking about books all the time and just start talking about YouTube videos. But that's a really, really good one. And seriously, though, if you're a writer, study that video because it shows you how a character who, you know, the, the, the David character in the David and Goliath situation can have a really strong and clear desire. And that rat wants to kick the ass of that cat and it does it. And it's engaging because even though most of us in the real world would always root for the cat, um, you root for the rat. Um, and, and that's just what happens. And likewise, I saw a similar video of this tiny golden retriever puppy sneaking up on a big golden retriever that was sleeping. And it was this slow motion crawl toward the dog. And we knew what the puppy wanted and we knew it was going to happen. And it was totally engaging to watch. And I swear watching these videos is not a waste of time. It is craft work. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Martha, it was so good to have you here. Uh, Unprecedented will be on the shelves December 4th. There will be links to everything we talked about in the show notes. And Martha, um, thank you so much. And I'll see you on the internet. I'll see you on the internet. And happy holidays. You too. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening to the Literati Cast. As I mentioned, I'll link to everything Martha and I talked about in the show notes. Available on my website, jenniferlawfren.com slash literaticast. Also, the Literati Cast has a Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash literaticat. Throw in a buck and you just might win books, including a copy of Unprecedented. Also, you'll have my gratitude. It's these donations that allow me to keep doing the podcast without going too deeply out of pocket. And I really appreciate it. If you like the podcast and you feel moved to do so, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps more people find the show. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.